Part four of Bartleby the Scrivener. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Newfeld. Bartleby the Scrivener, a story of Wall Street by Herman Melville. Part four. Established in my new quarters for a day or two, I kept the door locked and started at every footfall in the passages. When I returned to my rooms after any little absence, I would pause at the threshold for an instant, and attentively listen, ere applying my key. But these fears were needless. Bartleby never came nigh me. I thought all was going well, when a perturbed-looking stranger visited me, inquiring whether I was the person who had recently occupied rooms at number Wall Street. Full of forebodings, I replied that I was. "'Then, sir,' said the stranger, who proved a lawyer, "'you are responsible for the man who left there. He refuses to do any copying. He refuses to do anything. He says he prefers not to, and he refuses to quit the premises.' "'I am very sorry, sir,' said I, with assumed tranquillity, but an inward tremor, but really the man you allude to is nothing to me. He is no relation or apprentice of mine that you should hold me responsible for him. In mercy's name, who is he? I certainly cannot inform you. I know nothing about him. Formerly I employed him as a copyist, but he has done nothing for me now for some time past. I shall settle him, then. Good morning, sir." Several days passed, and I heard nothing more, and though I often felt a charitable prompting to call at the place and see poor Bartleby, yet a certain squeamishness of I know not what withheld me. All is over with him by this time, thought I at last, when through another week no further intelligence reached me, but coming to my room the day after, I found several persons waiting at my door in a high state of nervous excitement. "'That's the man! Here he comes!' cried the foremost one, whom I recognized as the lawyer who had previously called upon me alone. "'You must take him away, sir, at once,' cried a portly person among them, advancing upon me, and whom I knew to be the landlord of number Wall Street. "'These gentlemen, my tenants, cannot stand it any longer.' Mr. B., pointing to the lawyer, has turned him out of his room, and he now persists in haunting the building generally, sitting upon the banisters of the stairs by day, and sleeping in the entry by night. Everybody is concerned. Clients are leaving the offices. Some fears are entertained of a mob. Something you must do, and that without delay. Aghast at this torrent, I fell back before it, and would fain have locked myself in my new quarters. In vain I persisted that Bartleby was nothing to me, no more than to any one else. In vain. I was the last person known to have anything to do with him, and they held me to the terrible account. Fearful then of being exposed in the papers, as one person presently obscurely threatened, considered the matter and at length said that if the lawyer would give me a confidential interview with the scrivener, in his, the lawyer's, own room, I would that afternoon strive my best to rid them of the nuisance they complained of. 
Going upstairs to my old haunt, there was Bartleby, silently sitting upon the banister at the landing. "'What are you doing here, Bartleby?' said I. "'Sitting upon the banister,' he mildly replied. I motioned him into the lawyer's room, who then left us. "'Bartleby,' said I, "'are you aware that you are the cause of great tribulation to me by persisting in occupying the entry after being dismissed from the office?' No answer. "'Now, one of two things must take place. Either you must do something, or something must be done to you. Now—' What sort of business would you like to engage in? Would you like to re-engage in copying for some one? No, I would prefer not to make any change. Would you like a clerkship in a dry-goods store? There is too much confinement about that. No, I would not like a clerkship. But I am not particular. Too much confinement, I cried. Why, you keep yourself confined all the time. I would prefer not to take a clerkship, he rejoined, as if to settle that little item at once. How would a bartender's business suit you? There's no trying of the eyesight in that. I would not like it at all, though, as I said before, I am not particular. His unwanted wordiness inspirited me. I returned to the charge. "'Well, then, would you like to travel through the country collecting bills for the merchants? That would improve your health?' "'No, I would prefer to be doing something else.' "'How, then, would going as a companion to Europe, to entertain some young gentleman with your conversation, how would that suit you?' Oh, "'Not at all. It does not strike me that there is anything definite about that. I like to be stationary.' but I am not particular. "'Stationary you shall be, then,' I cried, now losing all patience, and for the first time in all my exasperating connection with him, fairly flying into a passion. If you do not go away from these premises before night, I shall feel bound—indeed I am bound—to—to quit the premises myself.' I rather absurdly concluded, knowing not with what possible threat to try to frighten his immobility into compliance. Despairing of all further efforts, I was precipitately leaving him, when a final thought occurred to me, one which had not been wholly unindulged before. Bartleby, in the kindest tone I could assume under such exciting circumstances, will you go home with me now? not to my office, but my dwelling, and remain there till we can conclude upon some convenient arrangement for you at your leisure? Come, let us start now, right away. No, at present I would prefer not to make any change at all. I answered nothing, but effectually dodging every one by the suddenness and rapidity of my flight, rushed from the building ran up Wall Street towards Broadway, and jumping into the first omnibus, was soon removed from pursuit. As soon as tranquillity returned, I distinctly perceived that I had now done all that I possibly could, both in respect to the demands of the landlord and his tenants, 
and with regard to my own desire and sense of duty to benefit Bartleby, and shield him from rude persecution. I now strove to be entirely carefree and quiescent, and my conscience justified me in the attempt, though indeed it was not so successful as I could have wished. So fearful was I of being again hunted out by the incensed landlord and his exasperated tenants, that, surrendering my business to nippers for a few days, I drove about the upper part of the town and through the suburbs in my rockaway, crossed over to Jersey City at Hoboken, and paid fugitive visits to Manhattanville and Astoria. In fact, I almost lived in my rockaway for the time. When again I entered my office, lo, a note from the landlady lay upon the desk. I opened it with trembling hands. It informed me that the writer had sent to the police, and had Bartleby removed to the tombs as a vagrant. Moreover, since I knew more about him than any one else, he wished me to appear at that place and make a suitable statement of the facts. These tidings had a conflicting effect upon me. At first I was indignant, but at last almost approved. The landlord's energetic summary disposition had led him to adopt a procedure which I do not think I would have decided upon myself, and yet, as a last resort, under such peculiar circumstances, it seemed the only plan. As I afterwards learned, the poor scrivener, when told that he must be conducted to the tombs, offered not the slightest obstacle but in his pale, unmoving way silently acquiesced. Some of the compassionate and curious bystanders joined the party, and headed by one of the constables arm in arm with Bartleby, the silent procession filed its way through all the noise and heat and joy of the roaring thoroughfares at noon. The same day I received the notes I went to the tombs, or to speak more properly, the halls of justice. Seeking the right officer, I stated the purpose of my call, and was informed that the individual I described was indeed within. I then assured the functionary that Bartleby was a perfectly honest man, and greatly to be compassionated, however unaccountably eccentric. I narrated all I knew, and closed by suggesting the idea of letting him remain in as indulgent confinement as possible till something less harsh might be done, though indeed I hardly knew what. At all events, if nothing else could be decided upon, the almshouse must receive him. I then begged to have an interview. Being under no disgraceful charge, and quite serene and harmless in all his ways, they had permitted him freely to wander about the prison, and especially in the enclosed grass-platted yard thereof and so I found him there, standing all alone in the quietest of the yards, his face towards a high wall, while all around, from the narrow slits of the jail windows, I thought I saw peering out upon him the eyes of murderers and thieves. "'Bartleby, I know you,' he said, without looking round, "'and I want nothing to say to you.' "'It was not I that brought you here, Bartleby,' said I, keenly pained at his implied suspicion. 
and to you this should not be so vile a place. Nothing reproachful attaches to you by being here. And see, it is not so sad a place as one might think. Look, there is the sky, and here is the grass. I know where I am, he replied, but would say nothing more. So I left him. As I entered the corridor again, a broad meat-like man in an apron accosted me, and jerking his thumb over his shoulder, said, "'Is that your friend?' "'Yes. Does he want to starve? If he does, let him live on the prison fare, that's all.' "'Who are you?' asked I, not knowing what to make of such an unofficially speaking person in such a place. "'I am the grub-man.' Such gentlemen as have friends here hire me to provide them with something good to eat. Is this so? said I, turning to the turnkey. He said it was. Well, then, said I, slipping some silver into the grubman's hands, or so they called him, I want you to give particular attention to my friend there. Let him have the best dinner you can get, and you must be as polite to him as possible. "'Introduce me, will you?' said the grub-man, looking at me with an expression which seemed to say he was all impatience for an opportunity to give a specimen of his breeding. Thinking it would prove of benefit to the scrivener, I acquiesced, and, asking the grub-man his name, went up with him to Bartleby. "'Bartleby, this is Mr. Cutlets. You will find him very useful to you.' "'Your servant, sir, your servant,' said the grubman, making a low salutation behind his apron. "'Hope you find it pleasant here, sir. Spacious grounds, cool apartments, sir. Hope you'll stay with us some time. Try to make it agreeable.' "'May Mrs. Cutlets and I have the pleasure of your company to dinner, sir, in Mrs. Cutlets's private room?' "'I prefer not to dine to-day.' said Bartleby, turning away. It would disagree with me. I am unused to dinners. So saying, he slowly moved to the other side of the enclosure, and took up a position fronting the dead wall. "'How's this?' said the grubman, addressing me with a stare of astonishment. "'He's odd, ain't he?' "'I think he is a little deranged,' said I, sadly. "'Deranged? Deranged, is it?' "'Well, now, upon my word, I thought that friend of yourn was a gentleman forger. They are always pale and genteel-like, them forgers. I can't pity em. Can't help it, sir. Did you know Monroe Edwards?' he added touchingly, and paused. Then, laying his hand pityingly on my shoulder, sighed, "'He died a consumption at Sing Sing.' "'So you weren't acquainted with Monroe?' No, I was never socially acquainted with any forgers. But I cannot stop longer. Look to my friend yonder. You will not lose by it. I will see you again. Some few days after this, I again obtained admission to the tombs, and went through the corridors in quest of Bartleby, but without finding him. I saw him coming from his cell not long ago, said a turnkey. Maybe he's gone to loiter in the yards so I went in that direction. "'Are you looking for the silent man?' 
said another turnkey, passing me. Yonder he lies, sleeping in the yard there. Tis not twenty minutes since I saw him lie down. The yard was entirely quiet. It was not accessible to the common prisoners. The surrounding walls, of amazing thickness, kept off all sounds behind them. The Egyptian character of the masonry weighed upon me with its gloom. But a soft imprisoned turf grew underfoot. The heart of the eternal pyramids, it seemed, wherein by some strange magic through the clefts grass-seed dropped by birds had sprung. Strangely huddled at the base of the wall, his knees drawn up and lying on his side, his head touching the cold stones, I saw the wasted Bartleby. But nothing stirred. I paused, then went close up to him, stooped over, and saw that his dim eyes were open. Otherwise he seemed profoundly sleeping. Something prompted me to touch him. I felt his hand, when a tingling shiver ran up my arm and down my spine to my feet. The round face of the grubman peered upon me now. His dinner is ready. Won't he dine to-day, either? Or does he live without dining? Lives without dining, said I, and closed his eyes. Aye, he's asleep, ain't he? With kings and counsellors, murmured I. There would seem little need of proceeding further in this history. Imagination will readily supply the meagre recital of poor Bartleby's interment. But, ere parting with the reader, let me say that if this little narrative has sufficiently interested him to awaken curiosity as to who Bartleby was, and what manner of life he led prior to the present narrator's making his acquaintance, I can only reply that in such curiosity I fully share, but am wholly unable to gratify it. Yet here I hardly know whether I should divulge one little item of rumour which came to my ear a few months after the scrivener's decease. Upon what basis it rested I could never ascertain, and hence how true it is I cannot now tell. But inasmuch as this vague report has not been without certain strange, suggestive interest to me, however sad, it may prove the same with some others, and so I will briefly mention it. The report was this, that Bartleby had been a subordinate clerk in the dead-letter office at Washington, from which he had been suddenly removed by a change in the administration. When I think over this rumour, I cannot adequately express the emotions which seize me. Dead letters! Does it not sound like dead men? Conceive a man by nature and misfortune prone to a pallid hopelessness. Can any business seem more fitted to heighten it than that of continually handling these dead letters and assorting them for the flames? for by the cartload they are annually burned. Sometimes from out the folded paper the pale clerk takes a ring. The finger it was meant for, perhaps, moulders in the grave. 
a banknote sent in swiftest charity he whom it would relieve nor eats nor hungers any more pardon for those who died despairing hope for those who died unhoping good tidings for those who died stifled by unrelieved calamities on errands of life these letters speed to death ah bartleby ah humanity end of part four end of bartleby the scrivener a story of wall street by herman melville